Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies, trying to force them upon each other through the latest news in both books and sports. Today, it's finally book time. It's all about damn books, about damn books. No sports. I might leave that in just so you know. (laughs) That's fine. In the world of book news, the first thing I'm going to bring up isn't... I wasn't sure about because it's technically not book news, it's TV news, but this TV show is adapted from a book series, so I thought maybe people would be interested in it. Okay. So season two of The Witcher has been delayed due to COVID-19 cases. Boom, shocker, explosion, bang, 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 bang. At this point, we're not really shocked anymore. Right. No other information has been released at this time, so I don't know if they're just not getting together to film because of COVID or if people are actually sick right now, what's going on. That's all that's come out in the past 24 hours. Exciting stuff. It's disappointing because I liked this show, but I don't like the fact that it's all out of order. So I'm going to have to rewatch the show before the second season comes out since it's so delayed. Yeah. And uh, that's part of the reason I never read the books either is they're out of order, not chronologically told. Yeah. And we have another adaptation in the works to talk about. Ooh, what is it? The CW is creating a Jane Austen anthology series. Oof. So the episodes will be an hour long, and each season is telling the story of a different novel. All of the seasons are contemporary retellings. Okay. Season one will be Pride and Prejudice, set in San Francisco. Okay. I'm not sure how to feel about this because everyone knows that Kira Knightley's 2005 Pride and Prejudice is obviously the best one so far. I don't know that you're going to top it with your CW TV show. Well, you know that it'll be very much about young teenage to young adult age characters and they kiss a lot. And that'll be the CW show. Uh, I mean, it's technically contemporary, so they might actually make out or whatever, but we'll see. It's being written and produced by Eleanor Burgess and produced by Warner Brothers Television. It will be called Modern Austin. What a name. Yep. I don't know. I want to be excited for it, but it's the CW and they always do their shows dirty. Very dirty. Unnecessarily. So. I mean, they just don't treat the characters very well, but also that. Yeah. What you're saying. Uh Uh-huh. So we'll see. Not a lot of information has come out right now, so... People still need to get cast. They still need to shoot all the fun stuff. Very early days. And then we have child labor happening. The eight-year-old daughter of Beyonce and Jay-Z, Blue Ivy Carter. That's a heck of a name. As someone with a heavy name to carry, yeah, that's a name. She's narrated the audiobook adaptation of Matthew A. Cherry's Oscar-winning short film, Hair Love. And it follows a father named Stephen who struggles to style his daughter's hair. If it ever happened, I agree. I would probably be that. Well, specifically African-American children's hair. Oh, well. So. In general, hair would be my weakness. Sounds like a mediocre white man to me. It was adapted into a children's book in 2019. I hope they worked within child labor laws. That's really young to yeah. be narrating a book, I think. I have a feeling that they legally have to, so it won't be a problem. Well, technically it's already done. You can get it now. Yeah. So. Well, that's totally fine, but I'm sure that it took some time to do. It wasn't like they just sat her down and was like, all right, we're recording until it's done. Also, it's a children's book, so it's pretty short. There you go. And then we have another famous person's child narrating their book. 
So Chip and Joanna Gaines's 10-year-old daughter has narrated the audiobook version of her mom's children's novel, or children's book, I doubt it's a full-blown novel. The book is called The World Needs Who You Were Made to Be. The book is about a group of kids building hot air balloons for a big adventure and learning to accept and embrace their differences. The book came out on November 10th and it should be available for the audiobook now. Just more child labor for funsies. Again, I don't think they broke child labor laws to make it. It's not like we're having children build Nikes, you know, in Thailand or whatever. Okay? I just like, think it's weird to have your child narrate your children's book. Is it? It's from a child's perspective, probably. So. I mean, yeah. So how weird is it, really? Think about it. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's not weird. Maybe it's just nepotism. But... The last bit of book news I have is that a town in Minnesota has come up with a new way to get children to read in the time of COVID. Okay. The public library in this town has created a, what they're calling, dial a story program. And it allows children to call in and listen to stories, chapter books, songs. And I guess the library staff records their reading every month. And so they have new stories and new chapter books every month for them to call up. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. I think that they're trying to work on young reader literacy right now because they can't do all the usual programming that they normally do in their libraries. Makes sense. Sounds cute. But the real bulk of my quote-unquote news for the week is the new releases coming out in December. I know it's only the middle of November right now, but we're not doing the podcast next week for Thanksgiving. So technically this is the last episode before new releases for December start coming out. I was going to say we're kind of waiting to the last week to take our week off, so... Yeah, so the first one is one that I am most excited for. It is the last book in the An Ember in the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. A Sky Beyond the Storm comes out December 1st, and I really don't want to give away the plot for all the first three books. Basically, An Ember in the Ashes is a fantasy story... It's like a desert fantasy, I would call it. And you have an oppressed class of scholars, and then you have the more militant class who's ruling over them. And what happens when a teenage girl is just working to spy for the rebellion in order to save her brother? And I think that's as much as I can tell you without starting to give stuff away. Without spoiling everything. But... I binge read this last year and then saw that it was going to be two years before Sky Beyond the Storm came out. But thankfully, unlike most of the books that I've talked about, this one got pushed up. So this was originally slated for April of next year, at least as far as I recall. And then it got pushed up to December of this year, thankfully. Oh, okay. There's a fourth book in the quartet... The final book. I'm very nervous because I didn't necessarily like where book three left off. Yeah. But I'm rereading that book soon, so hopefully it won't be as bad as I remember. And the other ones that I'm going to talk about are ones that I think look interesting or something along those lines, but I don't know a lot about what they're about. So I'll read part of the synopsis from Goodreads when I get to them. Okay. So also coming out on December 1st is a novel by Julie Buxbaum called Admission. And the synopsis says, It's good to be Chloe Wynne Beringer 
She's headed off to the college of her dreams. She's going to prom with the boys she's had a crush on since middle school. Her best friend always has her back, and her mom, a B-list Hollywood celebrity, may finally be on her way to the B-plus list. At least, it was good to be Chloe, until the FBI came knocking on her front door, guns at the ready, and her future went up in smoke. Now her mother is under arrest in a massive college admissions bribery scandal. Chloe, too, might be facing charges and even time behind bars. The public is furious, the press is rabid, and the U.S. attorney is out for blood. This sounds familiar to something that may have gone on recently right? at the United States. I wonder where the author University came of up Southern with this. California, maybe? So I think <laughs> it's kind of funny that someone turned what happened into a fictional novel but also kind of like i know she's supposed to be the heroine of the story but i kind of want to see her go down in flames <laughs> so i think it could be interesting it's a 300 and some odd page novel so it's pretty short it's a contemporary it could be good for anyone who's trying to bump up their goodreads goal for the year if they're not doing too hot there yeah. It's been a weird year. People are either doing great on Goodreads or they're doing very bad. There's no real in-between. That kind of makes some sense, I guess. Given the year we've had, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The next one is one I actually know something about. It's For Better or Cursed by Kate Williams. It's the second book in the Babysitter's Coven series. I got the first book last year as a part of NetGalley arcs, and I enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but... The first one, they basically tried to say it's adventures in babysitting plus Buffy the Vampire Slayer made into a book. Hmm. And when I read it, it really wasn't either of those things, which is where like you have to struggle between your expectation based off synopsis versus like what the book is actually giving you and decide what's the more important thing there. I liked it. It's, It's a witch coven of babysitters. So, like, that's funny to begin with. And basically, they have to take out some baddies and make sure that their charges don't get killed in the process. Okay. So, I mean, it's cute. You get a new girl in town who, you know, people start to think are doing some bad stuff. Right. And whether or not that's actually true. Are two different things. Right. But that comes out on December 15th. The first one was good. The second one... I'm not sure about because I felt like the first one left off in a decent place. So left off in a decent place like where you'd want it to end more or less or like... Well, it's like... Or do you think it's it left off in a place where it could open up for more and it should be written it, the way it is? It could have been opened up for more if you wanted to go down that road, but it stopped in a place where if you only think the first one's okay but don't want to continue on with the series, you can also stop there. Gotcha. You have enough closure there. And this next one I put on the list for December releases because I like the author. I've read other things by this author before, but I haven't heard of this book in particular. So the book is The Notorious Virtues by Alwyn Hamilton, coming out on December 18th, which is a weird date kind of, but it's the first in a new series. She's the one that wrote that desert fantasy series that I read all of in like the first two months of last year. Okay, yeah. So the first one was The Rebel of the Sands and it's The Rebel of the Sands series. All three of those books got four or five stars for me, which the fact that any of them got a five star for me is just a miracle. So she's a really good author. I like her work, but let me go ahead and read the synopsis from Goodreads. Okay. 
At 16, Nora Holtzfall is the daughter of the most powerful heiress in all of Wallstad. Her family controls all the money and all the magic in the entire country. But despite being the center of attention, Nora has always felt like an outsider. When her mother is found dead in an alley, the family throne and fortune are suddenly up for grabs, and Nora will be pitted against her cousin in the Veritas, the ultimate magical competition for power that determines the one family heir. Interesting. And I'll stop there because... Otherwise, spoilers. Yeah, I really don't like this new, I don't know, like time we're in where people think putting the spoilers in the synopsis means you'll want to read it more. Right. So I just cut that off there. Sounds fair. And then I put a psychological thriller on this list, despite this not being my jam as a whole, but this one has some good buzz already from early readers. It's The Wrong Family by Taryn Fisher. I haven't heard of this author, but she wrote a bestseller called The Wives, so she's doing well in that genre, I guess. Gotcha. This one comes out on December 29th, so you probably can't fit it in for your Goodreads goal, but let me go ahead and read the synopsis for you. Have you ever been wrong about someone? Juno was wrong about Winnie Crouch. Before moving in with the Crouch family, Juno thought Winnie and her husband Nigel had a perfect marriage, the perfect son, the perfect life. Only now that she's living in their beautiful house, she sees the cracks in the crumbling facade are too deep to ignore. Still, she isn't one to judge. After her grim diagnosis, the retired therapist simply wants a place to live out the rest of her days in peace. But that peace is shattered the day Juno overhears a chilling conversation between Winnie and Nigel. She shouldn't get involved. She really shouldn't. Sounds good. Yeah, I I think this is my problem. So when I read mysteries and thrillers, the synopsis always sounds so good, but there's always some sort of twist that makes me like absolutely hate it. Yeah. So it reminds me of the lady in the window, the woman in the window that came out within the past two years. And I remember I got it in one of those book boxes and I hated it because it's a good premise, but you have like an unreliable narrator in that one, or you've got weird time loops like in, oh, what was that one that everyone liked? Okay. I got up and checked. It's the silent patient. Which had a weird time loop in it that I hated. Yeah. So, like, I'll like the premise for psychological thrillers, but then how they work or how they make sense in the novel is using things that I think are really stupid or make me just not like it anymore. Right. Like, I hate unreliable narrators. I hate weird time loops or, like, you tell the story in a weird timeline so that it all makes sense in the end, but it was all creepy at the start. And it's like, I feel like you should be able to tell a linear story and creep people out or have some sort of psychological element without having to use these little, what I call, like, cheap tricks. Not the band. I wasn't going to reference that. Okay, you had a look. Yeah, my my look was thrillers are thrillers, and a lot of the times they do do that, and it's just to make it easier probably on the author more so than anything. Well, but, you can tell a story however you want to tell a story. It doesn't mean I have to like how you decide to tell a story, though. Right. But that one sounds really good, and it's like, should I buy that one and read it, or should I just wait for all the reviews to come out and decide? Right. And then the last one that I picked up to point out for the December releases is Fairy Godmother's Inc. by Serana DeWild, coming out December 29th. This is a, what looks to be a contemporary romance going off the cover, so let me go ahead and read the synopsis. 
If love is the source of all the magic in the universe, and the town of Ever After, Missouri, is the epicenter of enchantment, then the locals are in dire need of a reboot. At least according to resident fairy godmothers Petunia Yonkul and Blue Bonnet, their solution, blow a bit of fairy dust in the direction of those who need romance. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. Firstly, they're named Petunia. That is weird. I'm sure there are real life Petunias. There are. But also they're flowers. Yeah. Secondly, if they're blowing fairy dust over it, of course something's gonna go wrong. That's that's just how things work with fairy dust, I would imagine. Hmm. Yeah. And then basically you've got this main character whose life seems to just want to forever trip her up. And then you've got a guy who sort of has the opposite problem and I think they're gonna get together in Keith or whatever. <laughs> and if you're looking for a cute romance, I think that'll be a good one for you. It's also pretty short. It's only 320 pages. So if you get it on the day it comes out, you could probably squeeze it in before the end of the year. But I feel like that had a little bit of everything. Contemporaries, fantasies, psychological thrillers. Yeah. I did have one piece of book news, which is rare for me. I know. Like, ooh. Bindi Irwin announced that there's going to be a book about her family's conservation history on Steve Irwin Day, um, which was yesterday. She's going to be basically doing like a history of the conservation efforts that her family has done over the years and kind of binding it all together and releasing it. That sounds good. When does that come out? I, I didn't try to read down too far just because I didn't want to, uh, you know, not hear you. But uh, let's see here. It's going to be a 272-page journey through the zoo's humble beginnings to today where they're one of the country's leading conservationist zoos. doesn't look like it has a release date yet. It's saying it's in the works. So there's that. I apologize. But it is coming out. Are you looking it up? It actually came out on Steve Irwin Day on November 15th. Okay. So it came out already then. Yeah, it's being sold for $50 on the Australian Zoo's website. I'm sure that's to give them money. A kickback, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine they're in the same pickle that we are roughly with COVID right now. Maybe not as bad, obviously, but, you know, money's got to be tight in a lot of those situations, so. Well, I feel like one of the first things people cut out was going to places like the zoo. Yeah, because there's crowds and crowds of people usually, so that kind of makes a lot of sense. Right. That's good. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, that's the only weird bit of news I found that you didn't, and that's rare because normally you're on top of that one. Yeah. As for what I've been reading, I read two books this week. They're both pretty heavy-duty fantasy, so I'm kind of glad I didn't try to read more than that. The first book being The Court of Miracles by Kester Grant. It was released in June of 2020. I ended up rating this one 3.25 stars. And I think the main reason for this is I feel like the book holds you at arm's length the whole time. It's a Les Miserables retelling about what happens if they fail in the French Revolution and how they're sort of suppressed after the revolution tries to happen. Gotcha. Out of that stems nine different criminal guilds that are all with their own sort of rules and hierarchy and structure, but they all work together in the Court of Miracles. But there's a lack of world building here that I think really heavily relies on the reader having an understanding of A, Les Miserables, B, 19th century France, and C, an understanding of the basic general layout of the center of Paris. So me, is what I'm hearing. I mean, 
Sure, but I mean, most people aren't you. Yeah. And so I found that lacking, but also in the telling, a lot of things happen very quickly and they don't take the time to let the readers recover from the action is how I would put it. So you have a lot of action followed by a lot of action and you don't sort of recover from what happened, discuss what happened, or have very many interpersonal relationships deepen throughout the story. So I enjoyed it, but I really couldn't rate it more than 3.25 stars just because it lacks so much of the stuff that I love about stories. Like, it's very plot-driven. It's still good. I don't know if I'm going to continue with this series. I think it's supposed to be three books, and I just don't know if I can stay committed to a book series that is going to hold me at arm's length like that. So, I don't know. It's still good. Like, that's the problem. I still enjoyed it. I still enjoyed the idea of the criminal underworld happening at the same time you have the bourgeois existing and trying to hold down Paris. So... It's hard to really know if I want to or will continue. I think it'll all depend on what the next book is supposed to be about. Where it goes from where it left off. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And the second book that I read this past week was King of Fools by Amanda Foody. This is a technically a backlist from 2019. 2019 doesn't feel like it should be backlist, but it wasn't this year. I rated this four stars. I liked it. I didn't love it. I felt like, again, a lot of stuff happening with not enough recovery time. You have a lot of action that you don't get to see the fallout from the action. You don't get to see how that affects people. It's just jumping straight into more action. And in this one, this is the second book in the Shadow Game series. And in the first one, it's about this girl, N, who comes to the city of Sin because it's the last known place that her adoptive mother was before she disappeared. And she runs into her mother's old acquaintance, Levi, and he is the leader of a gang in the city of Sin's, like, seedy underbelly. And they sort of have to unravel the mystery of what happened to her adoptive mother and what it means that all of these weird, magical, mystical things are happening around them. And that all happened in like 10 days, like timeline-wise, in the book. And then this next book takes place over the course of like five months. So it's just really weird going from one to the other because you've got this one that's super fast-paced, but the timeline's also really weird because it's all within such a short time frame but then the second book just feels like there's a lot happening but you'll jump like two weeks later or one month later and it just it gives a weird feeling to the time for that one yeah but I still really enjoyed it this one had more of a like political machination when it came to the story versus the first one which is all about this girl trying to figure out what happened to her adoptive mother and I think in the third one you're still gonna get a lot of like the political workings in the city and in the different gangs throughout the city it just left off in a weird spot because 
the way it left off, it left a lot of questions that I didn't expect to have. Like, in the last 50 pages, you get bombs dropped on, like, every other page. And it's like, whoa, what happened here? Wait, what happened here? Why are all these things happening? Yeah. And you never really get the time to recover or try to think it out or, like, figure out what's happening before another bomb's dropped on you. So... It's in a weird spot where it's like, I want to read more, but I also want to figure out what all of that means before I go into a whole new book. Yeah. And I think this one also struggled a little bit with interpersonal relationships because everyone sort of had their own thing they were doing to make their gang work or to make the political climbs they were trying to make or whatever. And then they would come together for like two or three scenes and then all go their own ways to continue doing what they were doing before. So it's it's sort of weird that way. I don't know that I could rate it more than a four star just because it it sort of feels like, meanwhile, back on the ranch. <laughs> so I, I don't particularly love that storytelling type. What? Really? You know, flash forwards and flashbacks all over the place? Well, and I I really like the characters a lot, and I like the seedy underbelly of the city and, like, the different gangs and how they work, and also it's got a really unique magic structure that I don't think I've seen a magic system like this, but at the same time there are bits of magic that work in similar ways to other magic systems you've seen before, so it doesn't feel completely different in that, but... It's good. It's the second out of three, so obviously I'm going to read the next one, and hopefully that'll be a little bit better. I don't know that this technically falls into the whole second book syndrome. It doesn't feel like it's just there to work to make the first book connect to the third. I think it really introduced a lot of new things that make sense for the storytelling, and it is pretty action-packed, especially like the last half of the book, so. That's good, Elise. It's a little saving grace at the end. Yeah, so... We'll see when I get the chance to read the next one. Knowing you, it won't be long. Well, I don't have it on my November TBR, at least. Gotcha. As for what I am reading next, I'm putting a contemporary in this week because it's on my TBR, but also I've read a lot of heavier books at the beginning of the month, and then I look at my TBR and I was like, oh wait, you've still got three heavy science fiction or fantasies to read and they're all at least 450 pages. Got them chunkers on your list. And so uh, I, I wanted a contemporary to kind of break all that up. Yeah. So I will be reading Shipped by Angie Hockman. It is a 2021 arc that I got through NetGalley. It's a debut and I... I technically started it this morning, and I think you can already tell that it is a debut, so I'm hoping the book goes against that the further we get in. It just, it feels like, you know, freshman writing. Got it. But it is about a girl who is up for a promotion along with a guy that she hates that works at the same company she does. But her boss decides in order to decide who gets the promotion, they're going to send them on a tour with their company to see why this cruise isn't getting as much attention or as much... Traffic. Traffic, thank you, as their other cruises do. So they send them to... Go figure it out. Basically, figure out why... It's not getting that much traction, but also come up with PR because that's the department they're in and different ways to publicize it on social media and stuff in order to get 
more people signing up for the cruise. I think that sounds like it could be cute. It just depends on how it's done. So is it more like a hate to love, I guess? Yeah, it's supposed to be a hate to love or from what I've read so far, it's less hate and more like dislike to love, which some people would still call it hate to love, but I think hate's a pretty strong word. And I think they did a good job, at least in the beginning so far, of setting that up. It's just the real thing with hate to love is you have to be able to set up a solid reason for that person to feel the way they do at the beginning with all those hate feelings, but you also have to give it an out for a reason they could have been wrong to feel that way without it just seeming like they instantly just changed their mind for no reason. And then you also have to build it up through small things over time to change the way they feel versus just turning it on a dime. Right. So this could be either really good or really bad, but so far I liked it. I haven't read very much of it. It's good. So we'll see. And I also plan on reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows so that I can catch up to you basically and we can watch the movies together this is the plan during our break is to watch those so that we can be prepared to talk about it on the next podcast yeah so for those who are confused about what we're saying we will be taking a break during the week of thanksgiving and during that time you would have gotten to the point already where the break is for the movie so we'll watch the first movie and then discuss it on the next episode that comes out yep As for what you've read, you've read the middle third, basically, of Deathly Hollows. Yeah, I know that you said that we were, I'm going to read till the break next week, but I'm there. Right. I Um, meant to say that you had already done it. Yes. I figured as much, just to clarify for the people that are listening. I did get to that point, um, and I'm not happy about what that point is very much. Yeah, no one likes that part. So, uh, so far... It just seems like there's very little being achieved right in these chapters. Like This is the common complaint for that part of the book. A and, lot of people have that. And I just, like, I don't know that I really want to talk all that much about it. Like, it just, it left a bad taste in my mouth, I guess is the way to put it. Because, like, the last couple of books, I've, as you know, I've really enjoyed. Because they're all pretty action-y. Well, not even that. There's just... There's something going on that's setting up something. Like right now, I feel like there's so much of just, well, we traveled this day, we traveled this day, we traveled this day, we traveled this day, and like we did the one thing here, and then we traveled this day, and it's just like, oh, like it, it was rough because like I, as you know, normally read either very late at night or very early in the morning and nothing in between. And when you're either exhausted from the day or exhausted because you just woke up, it is almost paralyzing trying to read these chapters. So what I think is the problem here is that early on in the book, it's very action-packed. It's moving. Everything's going. And then you get to this sort of slog in the middle where basically they're just going from one campsite to the other and no one knows how to do this. It's like being in LA traffic in rush hour. It's just there's nothing happening. And it's just like, holy crap. So you have this sort of weird moment in the book where you're rushing and rushing and rushing and then all of a sudden you're slowing down and it's like walking through molasses. And then, as I know, the last third gets far more action-y, especially in the last handful of chapters. So, I don't know. It's 
not my favorite book, and this is a common complaint that people have with this book. Like, I have far too much notes for what I actually care to talk about. Like, I just... Well, let's just get to it and see. So, obviously, we start off with catching up to where we were last week, where they were apparating away from the Ministry... Then a thing happens and they don't tell you what the thing is. Well, the thing is, Yaxley ends up grabbing Hermione. Yeah. And they end up apparating to more or less the front door of 12 Grimald Place. Hermione's like, well, i got to get rid of this extra load of dump, you know, more or less it's behind me. He gets rid of him. And then she forces everybody to apparate to a forest. Right. And this is where the forest apparitions begin over and over. Albeit, there's a little action going on because obviously Ron is splinched and he's bleeding like nobody's business. Conveniently, Hermione shows... I feel like what happens a lot in these chapters, FYI, Hermione really shows how smart and prepared she is for things because a lot of the times it seems like Ron and Harry are like just going at it, guns blazing and nothing. They're not like they're prepared for nothing. That right. They and they would not last a day without Hermione. Without a doubt. Truly without a doubt. And so like, you'll hear that over and over in my notes. And I just wanted to prepare the listeners to like, listen for it because it's going to happen more and more again. She pulls out a potion from her super bag of toys and tricks. Basically starts to solve that problem for Ron. Obviously it's not immediate solutions and Ron is going to have to heal, but like the bleeding is stopped. Yeah. And they obviously set up the tent. I would imagine it was mostly Harry setting up the tent and Hermione putting out all the spells because, again, Hermione's prepared and Harry is not. And it just seems to be the way it was there, at least. Harry has a flash of seeing Grigorovich being killed by Voldemort after Voldemort reads Grigorovich's memories. Yeah. And he realizes, well, he's not worth anything to me anymore. Death. Yeah. And that's also something that you're going to see a lot in these chapters is him just Killing people willy-nilly, it seemed. Like. Well, I mean, it's Lord Voldemort. He's not going to go around giving people bunnies or well, something. I don't expect that by any means. Yeah. And I literally have, for chapter 15, uh, the trio continues to move their camp <laughs> into different locations until they find a town with a market so that they can steal some food since, well, because of the fact that Yaxley got a hold of Hermione, they weren't able to stock up for their journey. They just kind of were like, we're starting now. Ready, go. I'm just thinking about, you know, they had... Before this, some measure of control and safety because they, they could, had somewhere to go back to. And right. they had someone to cook for them. Yeah. And they never had to go hungry or face any sort of the tribulations or issues that they're going to have throughout now. the rest of the book. Yeah. All because the wrong person grabbed Hermione and traveled with them straight to the doorstep of 12 Grimald Place, which means she brought him into the security of the... Everything. Well, I'm trying to think of what it's specifically called. The Fidelius Charm. Yeah. And because she has done that, because she is one of the several secret keepers for that, everything's just gone. Yeah, it's no longer safe. And I feel like this is the moment where this gets pretty dark, especially with the interpersonal relationships between Harry, Hermione, and Ron, because that really gets tested as you lose your safety and your security. And Well, and on top of that, we'll stack some more on there because that's part of this chapter as well. They start deciding to wear the Horcrux around each other's necks and just kind of shifting person to person to person. Yeah. And that's all set off by the fact, again, because Hermione is smart and realizes when Harry goes into the town and sees the Dementors there in the market that he's not able to get any food because he can't produce uh, Patronus 
to get rid of the Dementors for him to safely enter the market and steal things. And Hermione basically is like, well, yeah, because it's draining your magic. The Horcrux is draining your magic. So, of course, Hermione, again, smart Hermione, being like, hey, idiots, because you know they would have never noticed that. Like, they wouldn't have put two and two together. Kind of continues down that whole thing. So the trio basically starts trading off shifts of wearing the Horcrux around their neck. And it really kind of seems to make it, and I, I shortened it, because it's like, there's a list of moments that occur. They're already kind of on a short fuse, but like the fuse is even shorter when they're wearing the Horcrux. Right. I think this might be part of the reason they're not making more progress. Is Well, they're being impeded drastically. Well, they're having to move location to location to maintain some sort of safety. But also, they've got the Horcrux dragging at least one of them down every day. And then you have the hunger factor and... I mean, thinking about it, they don't have enough information to go on at this point. Yeah. And you can't really work around that. But you also especially cannot work around that when you're hungry and you're tired and you're cold and everything else. Yeah. And then we end up with them apparating again to a riverbank in a forested area. And that later on that night, everybody's kind of arguing in the tent because there's always somebody that's a little frustrated. Yeah. And Harry overhears somebody talking coming towards them. So he's like, shut up, Hermione. And Hermione's like, why are you taking wrong side? And he's like, I'm not. Just shut up. Like, I hear something. Which, if I envisioned you as Hermione, you would have just beat up Harry right there on the spot. Like, without Hermione like, why and you I do me to have some differences. We not, do have some differences. I, I feel like, though, it even crossed her mind to be like, what? You're telling me to shut up? Like, mm-hmm. I, there's a little sass to what Hermione was saying at, at a certain point which I enjoyed. That was like the first little bit where I'm like, finally something worth reading, like entertaining at least. The group that was talking was made up of Ted Tonks, Dean, and two goblins, Griphook and Gornuck. That's a mouthful of names. Yep. And one of the goblins was telling them a story about how he got back at the ministry because he felt like they were prying too much into the business of Gringotts. And he tells his fellow travelers about how three students tried to steal the sword of Gryffindor Ginny, Neville, and Luna, but they got caught, and I'm like, ah, DA is doing some work. Right. Behind the secured doors. But in response, Snape had sent the sword to be secured at Gringotts, where he, as the goblin, confirmed that it was the real sword, even though it wasn't. Yeah. And then sent it down to, as we find out later, one of the Death Eaters' safes, which I think is... Do you know whose fault it is at this point? I do, but I just... Okay. Not there yet with what I'm talking about. Because I do mention it later in okay. my notes. So immediately Hermione summons Phineas Nigellus Black from his portrait that is in the house at 12 Grimwald Place and also in the office of the headmaster. The headmaster's yes. office. That's where my brain was going. The one that she removed last time to avoid spying. Yeah, right. And summons him and then forces him to wear a blindfold so he can't see... <laughs> Where they are, and I was like, again... How do you learn that spell, by the way? Again, Hermione being smart. (laughs) It continues as we go through. And they basically ask him if they've seen anybody move the sword recently, you know, other than that last attempt by the DA crew that are still in Hogwarts. But he'd only seen it out of place once before, and that was when Dumbledore was destroying the ring that was also Horcrux, that he can remember anyways. And then shortly thereafter, the short fuses continue, and the babbling and fighting 
continues. Uh, while Ron was wearing the Horcrux, he gets upset with the lack of progress and the very little food they have had and picks a fight with Harry and basically just ends up going, I'm, I'm done. I'm yeah. done with this nonsense. Hands over the Horcrux and asks Hermione if she's coming with him. And Hermione's like, no, we're doing things for the greater good. Like, I agree you guys shouldn't be fighting, but like, I have to stay with, her, with Harry. And uh, then Ron's like, fine, poof disapparates he's done with their nonsense Mm -hmm. and here we go again in the next chapter starting it off with a bang with hermione being smart hermione notices a symbol that has been drawn into the copy of the tales of beetle the bard a lot of times i struggle saying that well even when i'm talking to you about it i should have it completely down flawlessly she notices a triangular eye with a line through it harry is told about it by hermione and harry goes i've seen that on Luna's dad's necklace that he wore to the Weasley wedding. And he also tells her what Crumb told him about it, and that it was the mark of Grindelwald, which we eventually find out is complete and utter Bologna. It just happened to be that he was using it. I don't know if you're... Far enough to make that judgment yet? Right. I know about the Deathly Hollows. just, we're going to get to that. But, like, if it's beyond that, then I probably don't. It is beyond that. So then I don't. Okay. All right. Harry tells Hermione again, like, just, he's stuck on, like, this going to Godric's Hollow stuff over and over again. And tells Hermione that he still wants to go. And Hermione's like, yeah, sounds like a wise idea. Smart. Yeah. Well, we find out not so smart. But (laughs) now, yes, comes across as smart because she's like, well, it makes sense. It's Godric Gryffindor's sword that they're looking for. And it's named after Godric Gryffindor as Godric's Hollow because that's where he's from. Yeah. So it's like, woof, all the pieces coming together. Hermione's putting it all together and laying it down for Harry. And Harry's like, yeah, that. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, Hermione's showing that she's smart. Has them take a polyjuice potion and mix it with two random human muggle form people. So that they look relatively normal as they're walking into Godric's Hollow. So it's not just... The two most wanted people, more or less, right now. Well, and on top of that, another form of protection is they apparate there using the invisibility cloak over themselves. So they're double protected right when they enter Godric's Hollow. Right. And as they're walking into town, they're like, it, the conversation was really weird to me. It's like, well, will the house just jump out at us? It's like, it's a town of houses. Unless you know what the house looks like, no, it's not going to be like, this is where this person lives. Like, you might get lucky with, like, at least here in the States, we're notorious for putting, like, last names on mailboxes from time to time. But, like, in the U- so now. In, in the UK, that's not a thing at all. Like, they don't do that. Unless it's, like, a really fancy castle that they're living in, and in which case, then it's probably got a nice bronze sign for it. Otherwise, also, it's just... they would have known if they were looking for a castle. Right. It's just a street address. You know, you got the street name on the street on the corners, and then you have numbers on the houses, just like normal would be expected. So I just thought that was kind of funny that the two of them were like, oh, it should just jump out at us. Even Hermione was involved in that, and I was like, well, that's the one moment Hermione's not really showing her brains for, like, a second. But they end up getting to a graveyard next to a church, and they also kind of realize that it's Christmas Eve because there's a lot of Christmassy things around. Right. And as they're walking through the graveyard, they find a couple gravestones... First of which would be Kendra and Ariana Dumbledore's gravestones. And that just spins up a world of negativity of things that they've heard about Dumbledore more recently. So, um, which we go even further into later because they actually get a copy of the book. But 
Hermione also finds a grave with the symbol of Grindelwald on it with the name Ignatius Peveril. I hope I pronounced that right. Kind of right. Sounds about right. Okay. Harry's like, I don't care about that. He's clearly not there for any of these people. Like, he does not care one bit. He's looking for his parents' grave. Eventually, Hermione finds it. On the gravestone, it's inscribed, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I was like, that's deep. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of ways to take that. Harry took it as something a Death Eater would say, which is like, why would that be on my parents' gravestone? And Hermione's like, no stupid. And Hermione, being smart, breaks it down Barney style for Harry to kind of really understand it. Hermione ends up conjuring a wreath because Harry realizes he didn't bring anything like flowers or anything like that. Throughout this whole experience, they're kind of like on edge because they feel like somebody's watching them. I always feel like this chapter is really creepy. It is. It was really creepy. Uh, The next chapter is also really creepy. Yeah. And this is slowly kind of where I got a little bit back into the book. Like it was still, I kind of still felt like at this point in the book, like things were getting a little bit more interesting, but it was still a lot of things being stretched out beyond probably what they needed to be. Like, don't get me wrong, seeing the mark on the gravestone is important later in the book. We realize that. But the seeing the Dumbledore gravestones, like, really, like, was that really necessary? Like, I haven't seen anything that's connected it yet, but maybe there's something further down the line. Maybe. Yeah. I hate your maybes. <laughs> they piss me off more than they help in most instances. Well, the thing is you want me to confirm or deny something and I never will. Yeah. You're almost there. Really? Do you need me to give you any hints? I don't want you to give me any hints. I want to read the book. Okay, good. Yeah. Let's do that. Perfect. I wasn't asking for them, just to <laughs> clarify. I don't care. So they realize that they should probably put their invisibility cloak back on, obviously, because if they're being watched, they should be somewhat protective of themselves. So that's what they do. They start walking up the street, more or less to just try to, again, find the house that's just going to stand out to them. And as they're going along, they see a house that's really just got, like, all sorts of damage. It's abandoned, overgrown. It looks like an explosion has basically blown apart a whole portion of the house. And Harry's like, this must be my childhood home. It has to be. You know, the spell backfired and there was all sorts of damage based on what he'd heard previously. So it made sense that that was the house. Yeah. They went to go touch the gate and then a sign pops up. And I was like, that's such an anti-muggle deterrent. Like, they're not able to see the house firstly. It says that on the sign. Yeah. Basically explaining that the house was kept in this state to be a monument to the Potter family and the violence that occurred in the home. And as well, more or less, it's just invisible to any normal muggle. It's just only visible to people of the magic variety. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool. And while they were looking at it, they noticed an old woman approaching them slowly up the street. And she eventually gets to where they are and starts talking to them, even though they're still under the cloak, which was kind of weird and really irritated my brain as I went further into the book. Because obviously the invisibility cloak is supposed to keep you hidden from pretty much everything and protected, as it will be stated later when we go into the Beetle and Beetle the Bard stories. The problem with that is from the very first book, you've had this sort of question of can Mrs. Norris see them when they're under the invisibility cloak? Or can she just smell them because it doesn't block your scent? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a question that sort of has always existed about Harry's invisibility cloak. And and is another reason my brain was racked further, because as we get along, we know that that is relevant here momentarily. But they basically ask her if she's Bathilda, and she just nods and asks them to follow her. 
And as they're following her back to the, the house, they're just kind of like wandering through the streets with her. They get to the house, they come in, and there's like, the house just is moldy, abandoned, and just not taken care of. There's pictures all over the floors. Like, it's just in bad shape. It looks like the house has been ransacked. Yeah. And immediately, Bathilda's kind of like, hey, come with me really quick, Harry. I've got something for you. And follow me. And Hermione's just like looking around the house just aimlessly while she's like, well, I'll be right here. So Harry follows her upstairs. And as soon as Harry gets to the top of the stairs, he starts asking questions and then goes into a Voldemort flesh where Voldemort is telling Bathilda to basically keep him there don't let him out of your sights type thing and i just love that harry was just able to get like that defensive warning like like it's like almost like a radar for like safety there that occurred danger will robinson yep he turns around and realizes that there's a snake now coming out of bathilda's neck like that's such a weird place for there to be a snake exiting and i'm like secondly how did you not see the hole that it went into at some point like maybe it was somewhere else and not the neck and it just decided to come out of the neck the way that i understood it is that there was some spell that voldemort put on bathilda's body after the snake took residence in it and that the snake was just busting out at this point because it did what it was meant to do watch out for harry so harry is here it doesn't need to do its job anymore yeah well it just needs to secure harry basically right hermione hears like scuffling upstairs between harry and nagini fighting each other i think it's nagini 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 one of us has read this series a lot and would know what the pronunciation is, and some of us have not. So, Facts. however you would like to say it. However you want to guess my, whether being correct or incorrect, Nagini, anyways, is more or less winning this fight. Harry is losing. Harry's been bit at least once. It's just not, not looking good when Hermione enters. Hermione enters and starts, like, shooting spells at Nagini, and Nagini is just like, well, now you're my focus. I've got this guy more or less handled like dazed and confused at a certain point hermione uses the spell confringo that's the way it was spelled i don't know if it's right i probably said it wrong because i don't say magic things very well to try and kind of overly blast nagini away or nagini away from them and in turn it just goes ricocheting off of everything inside the house and then eventually causes a small explosion that kind of blows everybody away from one another and in the process harry's like let's get out of here sees a window that's busted out drags hermione with him right out the window to try to escape then they disapparate in thin air Right there, jumping out the window. Right in front of Voldemort, who's standing in the window at that point, looking down on them, because Harry senses that, like, they're being watched. And I'm like, that's super creepy. I think technically he gets a vision from Voldemort's perspective, watching them fall out and disappear. Exactly. Really kind of creepy. But dodged a bullet, just barely. And then to torture Harry, Voldemort throws him right into a spiral of reliving basically him coming up the street and killing his parents and kind of the death scene more or less. So it was just like bada bing, bada boom. You end up finding out that it actually wasn't Voldemort, but at first that's like what you feel like it is because all these flashes that, you know, Harry's having. Obviously the first thought is like, that's gotta be what it is. Um, But it ends up being the fact that the Horcrux has permanently attached itself to Harry's chest. And Hermione's had to use a spell to literally cut it off of him. So that's that's a fun thing. That's pretty dark. Yeah. Again, a lot of dark all happening at once. And like, it was like that short rush that really needed to happen to keep my attention span. Because if this hadn't happened, I, 
I might have just been like, listen, I don't want to read this right now at all. Maybe ever. And I'm glad it happened because otherwise I would have been very upset. I think it gets better from this point. Right. As far as everything having at least some relevance to the plot. Yeah. At a certain point, he ends up coming to and then realizing as well that his wand was damaged during that explosion in Bethilda's house to a level of beyond repair. So, like, his wand is just worthless. Yeah. What's really irritating is that Harry, even though he's injured still, like, kind of recovering from this haze, he immediately is like, give me your wand, I'll do the first watch. And it's like, no. Stubborn boys. Yeah. I think... His wand getting broken isn't something to gloss over because this is something that Harry has viewed as something good that's protected him since he became a wizard. Yeah. And this wand has faced Voldemort so many times and it's the connection between the wands that Harry feels protects Harry and that he worries now that he is more vulnerable using another wand. Yeah, because he basically states that he was protected so many times during these skirmishes with Voldemort. Clearly, like, now that protection level is gone. So now he's not protected in Toad Grimald Place. He's not protected in the Dursley's house. Now he's not protected with his wand. So it's like, what? what is protecting me at this point? You know, like, really not a whole lot. He's became quite a bit more vulnerable in a very short amount of time. And then Harry, as he's wearing the Horcrux on his shifts, has becoming more and more upset with Dumbledore and the lack of information he kind of gave him about everything. Like he's just getting frustrated that, like, he has to figure out all this stuff out just out of the blue, out of nowhere. So he's irritated with that. And then Hermione kind of starts digging into the copy of Rita Skeeter's book that she uh, swiped while she was in Bathilda's house. Yeah. There's the other side of Hermione. Yeah. Just doing whatever she needs to. Yeah. Even if it's technically criminal. Yeah, well, she's dead, so is it really that criminal? Albeit uh, she didn't know she was dead at that point when she swiped the book, but... Technically, it's still stealing, is it not? I guess. But from a dead person, I feel like it's not maybe as bad in that instance, but... She finds out more about the connection between Dumbledore and Gellert Grindelwald, and how at one point, I guess he was the great-nephew of Bathilda... Yeah. And he came after school at Durmstrang after he finished his schooling to spend like a couple weeks is what it seemed like mm-hmm. with Dumbledore and they built a strong relationship. Technically, he was coming to visit his great aunt yeah. after finishing Durmstrang and just met Dumbledore. Yeah. And then he also finds out via Hermione that there was a letter that Dumbledore wrote to Gellert Grindelwald about how wizards should control muggles for basically the sake of muggles own good. Right. Which... The greater good. Which literally is continuing to spiral Harry's opinion about Dumbledore and more of his frustrations with Dumbledore as well. And that kind of forces Harry into like this internalized, constant questioning about whether he can trust anything that Dumbledore put him in the direction of. Right. Which is just not healthy for the quest, obviously. I think this is obviously a child not realizing that you can grow and develop as a person over time. Yeah. And then basically Hermione's sitting there trying to reassure reassure Harry that, like, you can grow and change things. Like, it's not the way he was when he died. And, you know, he was an adolescent. He was our age and he was stupid. Don't you agree that we've made dumb decisions type of conversations to try to get him out of that state of mind? And then they 
keep teleporting to different places or apparating to different places. It's definitely not teleporting. No, they're apparating in different locations again, and it ends up being a cold, snowy night, and Harry's on watch again, and a silver doe appears, kind of Patronus-y looking. I just, we don't know who it is yet that's done it, or if it's just there. We don't know these things. She's mimicking a zipper across and throwing away a key, so I'm not shocked that I you're not going to tell me anything, and I'd rather you didn't. It's not what I'm gunning for right now. But Harry gets up and follows it. Like, A, they led on to the fact that Harry's sleep-deprived because he hasn't been out of his head about all his Dumbledore crap and the Voldemort stuff. So, like, he's sleep-deprived and he's following this apparition, more or less, into the forest. And he's going deeper and deeper into the forest. And at a certain point, it just disappears near a frozen pool of water. Which, on the bottom, when Harry uses a spell to light it up the surrounding area to see, like, who casts you know, the Patronus, he sees that at the bottom of the frozen pool, there's something shining at the bottom that looks an awful lot like the sword of Gryffindor. And he sees it at the bottom of the pool and immediately breaks the ice, starts taking off some of his clothes so that he'll have dry clothes to get back into when he gets out, and plunges into the water to grab the sword. And as he's swimming deeper and deeper to try to get to the sword, the horcrux around his neck is getting tighter and tighter and tighter, forcing him to not be able to breathe to the point where he blacks out. And all he remembers is somebody else jumping into the water as he's blacking out. And he gets pulled out. And as he's coming to, he notices it's Ron. And Ron cut off the Horcrux from his neck. And then also had the Sword of Gryffindor. Which makes sense because he's a true Gryffindor. So therefore, he should be able to pick up the sword. And it's just like, in my brain at that point, I was like, okay, well, they explained that Ron's never going to be able to find him. How did that happen? And we find that out momentarily. But, like, it was just craziness. Um, my brain was just spiraling, like, how did that happen? How did it happen? How did it happen? And, like, I stopped reading because my brain was trying to rack itself on how it could figure it out. And You know what would have helped with that? Just reading it. Yeah. Yeah, as I found out. But basically, Harry's like, well, the sword's chosen you. You have to be the one that destroys the Horcrux. And so, like, they wander off to find, like, a rock to put the Horcrux on. He realizes that speaking Parseltongue will open the the actual locket. Yeah. And so the locket opens and there's just an eye floating there, which is super creepy. Like, why is there a random eye there? But the Horcrux basically talks about how everybody hates Ron and how they all love Harry more and, like, just starts really picking at Ron, like trying to make him not go through with it to the point where the Horcrux creates bubbles that form the head of Hermione and Harry. And they're talking about how bad Ron is and how blah, 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 like on and on and how much Hermione actually has feelings for Harry and like all this crap that's just undermining Ron's mental state of being able to do anything. And then it has the Ron and I'm sorry, the Harry and Hermione bubbles kiss and Ron's like, I've had enough smashes the thing with the sword right into the eye and destroys the horcrux with the sword and as they're going back Ron's like I'm so sorry that I did what I did like I now know that that thing was messing with me and all this crap so they walk back when they get back there Hermione is about ready to literally kill Ron like just ready to beat him to death she was never gonna kill Ron I don't know Seemed like it. She was pretty angry. And Harry puts a shield spell in between them just to keep them separated in the meantime. And Ron explains the fact that, like, he wanted to come back immediately, but he was stopped by Snatchers, which was a new term that I didn't know. Right. So basically these hordes of groups of people that 
are either working for the ministry or alongside Death Eaters or with the Death Eaters or our pure bloods are hunting down all these mixed blood people and muggles or mudbloods as they call them in the book and bringing them in front of the courts. Hermione's still pretty upset even after hearing the story. He basically explains how he found them and used the Deluminator in a way that I didn't know it was feasible. It randomly popped up a light every time, like whether Harry or Hermione used his name to talk. And the light went into Ron, and then Ron was able to see where they were, so he would apparate to them. And he missed them once before already, and was able to find them the second time when the doe was appearing. And hence why Ron followed the doe and Harry to where Harry was being choked out in the water. But Ron also explains that he has this spare wand that he can give Harry because... In the process of escaping the Snatchers, he picked up an extra wand. Yay. Again, I feel like this, these chapters are just more and more filler-based, explaining what happened when Ron ran away and mistakes that he made himself and all these things. But Ron informs Hermione and Harry that there is now a taboo on using Voldemort's name and not to say it because it allows the Snatchers to track people that say his name out loud. Uh, and he does that by correcting... Harry from using it multiple times like hey stop it like don't do it yeah Hermione decides that they need to go see Luna's dad and Luna because they know that at least he's a supporter of Harry and them fighting back against Voldemort but also that he has some idea of what that symbol is the triangle with the line through it so they finally get there and Mr. Lovegood seems reluctant to even kind of helping him or letting him in the house like no 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 Keep your distance, leave me alone, I don't want any part of this. And he finally ends up letting them in and invites them upstairs to where there's printing presses kind of putting together copies of the Quibbler. Harry asks about what the sign means, like after making a little bit of small talk and trying to catch up, after finding out that Luna's supposedly down at the river fishing, and they're like, well, that's weird, we didn't see her, you know, as we came up the hill, but sure, maybe she's down there now. And more or less, Mr. Lovegood starts to kind of break it down with the Beetle, the Bard stories that... Neither Hermione or Harry have ever heard, but Ron's like, yeah, I know that one about the three brothers, which turns out possibly being the Peveril brothers, which ends up being the Peveril brothers. The thought process kind of go through there. But the oldest brother asks for a wand after the three brothers cheat death on a river by magically creating a bridge. And so the oldest brother asked for a wand that would always win duels. The second asked for the power to bring people back from the dead and death gave him a stone with that requested power basically which we end up finding out was the resurrection stone and the third asked for something that would let him leave that place without being followed by death and he received the invisibility cloak so now we know we have the elder wand the resurrection stone and the invisibility cloak which harry currently has one of the three Mr. Lovegood explains that those three items make up the Deathly Hollows. Uh, the legend states whoever has all three objects will be the master of death. Bum bum bum, like super dark moment yeah. as well. And Hermione's like, this is all baloney. Like, this is These BS. aren't real things. These aren't real. Like, we know that those things aren't real. Why are you making it up? Mr. Lovegood basically states that he believes Harry's cloak is one of the three items. And he's heard plenty of stories about the wand's existence. And Hermione's like, well, yeah, we've learned about those people in the history of magic. So, like, they come to the conclusion that at least two of the things exist. But basically he hadn't heard no stories about the stone. So 
he's not 100% certain, but he's like, if the other two exist, clearly the third exists by process of elimination. Like, that's just the way it works. Hermione asks if there's any connection between the Peveril family and the Deathly Hollows, and Mr. Lovegood's like, the theory is that those were the three brothers. And, you know, it kind of all makes a little bit more sense to everybody there at that point. And it kind of ties Harry to one of the original Peveril families, which I thought was, like, kind of a weird lineage, but makes sense as well. By them being in the same graveyard? Yeah. Okay. And then while uh, Mr. Lovegood kind of excuses himself to go down and make them some food and to check on Luna, uh, Harry ends up wandering off upstairs to go explore a little more and sees that Luna's room is, like, covered in dust, an absolute mess. It doesn't look like anybody's been there for months uh, as described in the book. And he kind of goes down there and calls out Mr. Lovegood to explain himself. Like, dude, you've been pro-ministry or pro-potter. Like, what is going on with Luna and why isn't she here? Just calls him on the BS, basically. He admits to them that the ministry took her a few months back because of all the pro-potter articles he was writing as a punishment to him. In the process of this argument, they're going back and forth and talking about it. Hermione basically calls him on some more nonsense. Like, you went and sent an owl to the ministry, didn't you? While you went outside to go look for Luna. Death Eaters kind of start arriving at that point. And Mr. Lovegood tries to make an attempt to subdue the trio. And ends up blowing up at a rumpet horn. Which Hermione was also right about. Which I thought was great and scary at the same time. Because it blows up a large portion of the house. It describes it as half the house in the book, which is pretty intense. Then you kind of have the escape plot forming by Hermione because she can hear people downstairs trying to clear the debris to get back upstairs to get to them. The Death Eaters are like talking trash to Lovegood, basically saying, what did you bring us here for? More nonsense, like heckling him and crap. And he goes, no, no, it's what it is. And so Hermione's plot ends up being that they're going to burst through the floor or the roof of the first floor. And Ron is going to be covered in the invisibility cloak. This way they can see that both Harry was there and Hermione was there in the house so that the Death Eaters don't torture Mr. Lovegood or kill him for that matter. And then they disapparated away from the chaos. Over the next chapter, Harry's just literally just like only caring and thinking about collecting the pieces of the Deathly Hollows. Like, he doesn't care about anything else. It's just this, that, and that. And that's all that he cares about. And then he, as he's thinking about it, he comes to the realization that the ring that was Mr. Gaunt's ring was the Resurrection Stone itself because he was related to the Peverleys because he remembers seeing the Peverleys crest on it. Peverells. The Peverells. I'm sorry. The Peverells crest on it. I would be bad if I didn't correct you on that one. That one's very important. Yeah. And so there's that. You know, he notices that's the case. And then that he can hear things rattling around in the golden snitch. And he's pretty certain that's what's inside of it at this point. He doesn't know how to open it yet, but that's his guess of what's inside the snitch. And then he also comes to the realization that Voldemort was not hunting down Ollivander and Grigorovich to have them create a new wand. He was clearly trying to figure out where the Elder Wand was. You know, he heard the stories that, that that something had existed like that. But he also comes to the understanding that clearly Voldemort didn't know about the Deathly Hollows because he was putting a, he put a Horcrux on an item of the Deathly Hollows. Like, right. clearly wasn't apparent to him that he knows what else is going on. But that makes sense because he was raised not in a magical household, so like he didn't know the tales of Beetle the Bard. He just heard about an unbeatable wand. And he needed to go find it. Yeah. Because that'll clearly cure the problem of being able to kill Harry. But Hermione reminds Harry that 
he probably would have been told about the Deathly Hallows by Dumbledore if he thought it was that important and that they need to continue to focus on hunting down the Horcruxes and destroying them first and foremost. Ron also agrees with that statement. So we're still kind of hopping around trying to do as much learning as possible to try to find these extra Horcruxes and where they're located. Ron manages to, at a certain point, on the radio pull up the channel for Potter Watch, which was entertaining. I actually really enjoyed that bit. I thought it was really funny. It's produced by members of the Order of the Phoenix, and the show was hosted by Lee Jordan, going by the nickname of River. And then you had Kingsley Shacklebolt as Royal, and Remus Lupin as Romulus, and Fred Weasley as Rapier. I, I can't remember what Fred's nickname was originally, but it was something really annoying, and Fred was like, no, that's not my name. Right. This is what I'm going to be, and I thought that was really entertaining. They find out that a couple people have been killed and or collected by the snatchers ted tonks has passed away he's killed a couple other people as well muggles were being just slaughtered for no reason just because and as they're talking about the show harry accidentally says voldemort and things go to hell in a handbasket very quickly because real fast there's a taboo on it like immediately ron's like stupid why did you do that and they hear a voice outside that says that there's a dozen wizards out here and we have the tents surrounded come out with your hands up and your wands out of your hands basically like don't don't come out with any firearms of magical varieties and the last scene i well last scenes in the next chapter have a lot to do with firstly hermione camouflaging harry which by using a sting curse which i think is hilarious he bloats up like he's allergic to the sting which is pretty funny yeah and they give fake names but more or less they start connecting the dots while they're searching the tents like well he was seen with hermione granger who is this is clearly this person and there's that smudge on your head that looks kind of like the scar and it all starts kind of coming together and they're like oh so we have harry potter so they travel to the malfoy's home which is like the home base for voldemort and the death eaters more or less kind of like grimwald place was originally the bickering begins amongst the family there like is it or isn't and I will say the one thing I liked about the scenes where everybody was like fighting whether it was or wasn't was the fact that Malfoy wasn't actually actively trying to throw them under the bus, which was weird and I'm sure is important later on. But like, I'm getting the same look of like, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. So I mean, you just have this kid who's trying to stay alive and protect his family. And so like, he's not giving them yeses or nos. He's doing what he can to not give it away. But at the same time, he can't directly say no. Right. Because then when they find out that he lied, he's going to be in much worse trouble than if he just said maybe. Yeah. Either way, Bellatrix ends up having them all locked up and taken down to the dungeon. And while they're down there, Ron realizes, because he had used the deilluminator in the tent before they came out, that he has light still in the deilluminator and he can reach his pocket to use it or have somebody reach his pocket. I think it was Luna that he actually had come and grab it because they were able to get out of their stuff already, out of their uh, bindings. They're able to put three orbs into this cell and they find Ollivander and the one goblin who originally played the trick on Bellatrix. Grip hook. Yep. And they also find Luna, obviously, in that instance. More or less, Luna ends up helping all of them get out of their cuffs, magical cuffs, I guess. And Harry's like, well, we can't apparate out of here, so how do we get out? And it just kind of dawns on him, like, well, I can have uh, Dobby apparate in here because this is his house and it's elf magic and it's different. It's the same way that Grimmauld place worked with Creature. 
Yeah. That's kind of where he connected all the dots. So he had Davi apparate in and take out Ollivander and Luna. And Griphook. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. I was going to say, like, not then. So it was just the two of them that escaped at that point. Hermione's up there being tortured right now by Bellatrix to, like, spill the beans, whether or not, like, this sword is the real one or the fake one, and she's just not letting it go, which really showed, I think, how strong Hermione is mentally to deal with, like, that kind of torture, to just be like, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. It's fake. Like, it's the fake one here. You have the real one. And so they drag Griphook out of the dungeon. the dungeon, and he is basically told by Harry, like, the one that's here right now is fake. The one they have is real. Like, don't say anything else. And Griphook stands his ground and tells him the way it is. Like, no, this is the fake. I can tell you because of this, 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 and this. In the process, basically, they're being dragged back up there to prepare for Voldemort to arrive, Ron and Harry. And everything goes crazy again, more or less. They end up stealing a wand from Pettigrew because Pettigrew is the one that's supposed to come and get them. And so as Ron and Harry are on their way back up to the room, uh, they came bursting in, just firing off magic spells at people, causing a little bit of commotion and chaos. Are you missing the part with Pettigrew? Well, I just said that they stole the wand from Pettigrew, so maybe? Well, you're missing the part where he... Oh, kills he, himself. he kills himself. Yeah, I'm sorry. That is important. It is important. Yeah. Because he owed Harry a debt. Right. And so his fake hand couldn't stand it and kill him. That's how they're able to take the wand and go back up and cause the chaos yeah. that was ensuing upstairs. And then Dobby appears and continues to grow the extent of chaos by stupefying Bellatrix away from Hermione. And then everybody is apparated away by Dobby. That's to where they're hoping is the Weasley house, the new house for Bill and Fleur as they escape. Shell Cottage. Yeah, we didn't know whether that is where they ended up or not yet because the book doesn't say that. But that's what it's called. Yeah. You see basically at the end of that chapter Dobby dying and I was not happy about that at all. Yeah. There's been enough deaths already. Like we lost Ted Tonks, we lost Mad-Eye Moody, we lost Hedwig, now we're losing Dobby. I don't know that I can handle this anymore. And Okay. Um, might not want to read the rest of the book. Oh, I know. There's more coming. Okay. But I'm just not happy about it. No. To say the least. The second most useless death in Harry Potter. Yeah. The first one being Hedwig. Yeah. I don't know that Dobby's death was useless necessarily. Like, he, his death was important because he helped them escape all this nonsense. Because, like, they were all about to die. Yeah. And Dobby was, in his dying motions, saved everybody. So, I think that's pretty useful death i guess to an extent like hedwig just died well there was no that's reason why that it's not happen. the most unnecessary death yeah but there have to be stakes and that's one of them but based on everything i'm being told by you and people that i know that have finished the book i should be looking forward to this last third i'll probably be reading it this week while you're gone and during the week of thanksgiving but a lot happened at the very end i felt again like there was a lot of droning on and on in the middle of this and i just didn't enjoy that but i'm glad things are starting to get moving the thing is a lot of the stuff that you're complaining about is actually relevant oh no it all is and like i've noticed that obviously and i'm trying to remember all of it because you told me to like literally last week you told me to pay attention to the things that didn't seem important right and and i have been it's all still up here it's just it dragged on a lot longer than i would have liked but i know it's important so I'm excited to put it to use. So now we're coming up on Thanksgiving this next week. It'll be our Thanksgiving break. 
And then the next episode that we push out is going to be the book-to-movie adaptation for just the first of the last two movies. Yeah, Deathly Hallows Part 1. And then we'll get back into reading the rest of the book and then the other adaptation. But I felt like you could get more of a genuine idea of how you felt about the movies if you didn't have to watch the movies back-to-back. Yeah. So I think that'll be fun. We'll probably, for Thanksgiving, watch Harry Potter. That's exciting. Make sure you guys stay connected with us on all of the social media. That'll be linked in the show notes. We're going to try to stay up on it during the break. Yeah, I'm going to try to own those uh, social media accounts with at least the sports and like major book news that comes out throughout the next two weeks during the week that you're listening to this and the week after that. So please follow us so that you can stay up to date with what we have going on as well. And we'll catch you next week. The week after that, actually? That that week, yes. The week after next week. Uh, <laughs> it'll be probably some pretty long episodes. So be ready. Maybe make some popcorn and enjoy it the right way. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.